in chapter 10 this morning, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Previously in Luke's gospel, as we've seen in just the previous chapter, Jesus had sent the twelve out to cast out demons and to heal and to preach the kingdom of God. We saw that in the very first verses of chapter 9. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, here in chapter 10, we find that there is a larger group of disciples, a larger group also committed to following Jesus, and Jesus is now going to send them out to accomplish his ministry as well. And we are reminded that Jesus had more than 12 followers. There were larger groups that would follow him. There were many thousands that are in some places in Scripture referred referred to as disciples. You see this in John chapter 6 when following the feeding of the 5,000, they 
continued to follow Jesus, but when Jesus taught instead of feeding them, and when Jesus taught very difficult things for them to hear, they all left him. But in the description of that event, those thousands who ultimately left Jesus were called disciples. So you've got that very large group that are just kind of, you know, hangers-on. They're, they're there to see the show. Right? Let's go and, you know, maybe Jesus will do another miracle. That'll be pretty cool. We've got nothing else to do today. But then you've got smaller groups, hundreds perhaps, that are more committed than that. You've got a smaller group such as we're seeing today, the 70. Committed, committed enough to go out and to perform ministry as Jesus sends them. Then you've got smaller groups than that. You've got down to the 12, and then in the 12, you've got the three, Peter, James, and John, who were taken up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. But here in chapter 10, you have the 70. And this is good to pay attention to as you're reading through the Gospels to kind of get a feel for who you're dealing with. Who is Jesus speaking to at any given time? Is it the three? Is it the twelve? Is it a little bit of a larger group? Is it the multitudes, the thousands? You get an idea of what he's trying to accomplish in his teaching depending upon who he's speaking to. Well, here in chapter 10, Jesus is sending out uh, the 70 or the 72. There's a little bit of a question there as to exactly how many there were, depending on the manuscripts that are being uh, looked at. New American Standard says 70, but if you look at the marginal reference, you'll see the note there. Some manuscripts read 72. But Jesus is sending this larger band out. They're going out two by two. The point, it seems, is that the work of missions and evangelism is not only for the apostles. It's not just the work of the twelve. It's not only the work of this special group, but for all who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And so, as we prayed just a few moments ago, it is our responsibility to take the gospel. Not just to have someone else do it for us. And even when we speak like that, we need to be careful because it's not just a responsibility, is it? It's a privilege. We have the privilege of taking the word of life to those who need to hear it. Because it's only the gospel that brings life. It's not ritual. It's not sacrament. It's not anything that we do. It is the gospel that transforms. It's the gospel that God uses to bring people from death to life. And we have the privilege of proclaiming that gospel. You don't have to stand in a pulpit to do it. 
And you don't have to go to another country to do it. Jesus is sending out this group of ordinary people. He's making them evangelists. And they don't have to go to seminary for it. They're given no titles. They hold, it seems, no office or special position. But like the twelve, they were called to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom, one of the earliest indications of the missionary call of the church. Now, Jesus will make this much more explicit later, but this is the beginning. We already understand that what Jesus is doing describes for us the missionary nature of the, new, of the people of God. Even Old Testament Israel was to be missionary in nature. They were to demonstrate in their own obedience to Jehovah that Jehovah is the one true God. And the nations were to see that. They didn't do a very good job. We need to ask what kind of job we're doing. Because we're given the same task as this army of evangelists. Go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. The same Lord who calls us to follow him calls us to go out and preach the gospel. Now, the work of these witnesses is most clearly described here in verse 9. Heal those who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? Because this is what the people were waiting for. They had been looking for the kingdom. Now, in their mind, the kingdom meant the restoration of David's kingdom. They were waiting for the Messiah to come who was going to kick the Romans out and reestablish the Davidic kingdom, a literal political kingdom there in Jerusalem. That's what they were looking for. Jesus says, I want you guys to go out and tell them the kingdom has come. But it's not what they were expecting. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And so these evangelists are called to a ministry, as we see there in verse 9, of both word and deed. They are going to go heal and they are going to preach. Their basic message was the coming of the kingdom of God, the advent of God's righteous rule through his king. They could go and they could proclaim the coming of the kingdom because the king had come. It was the king who was sending them out. Jesus is the king. And when he came, he established the kingdom. And now he is sending out his heralds. 
so that people would know the kingdom is here. This was the primary ministry of these evangelists. He also, of course, gave them power to perform miracles so that they could minister to the body as well as to the soul. This was an immediate blessing to everyone who was touched by their ministry, but it also had a further purpose. As miracles always have a further purpose that go beyond simply the healing of this particular individual, Miracles, when we see them in the New Testament, always have one ultimate purpose, and that is to confirm the message that comes along with it. Miracles are not performed for the miracle's sake. Miracles are performed as confirmation of the message. When people saw these evangelists healing the sick, they knew then that what they said was true. And confirmation of the ministry of the word with accompanying deeds still is vitally important today. Certain times and in certain places, God may still work through the miraculous. God is a miracle-working God. That part hasn't changed. Especially when the gospel's first penetrating pagan cultures, God may still work miracles. But whether he works miracles or not, the church is called to demonstrate the love of Christ in practical deeds of mercy. What we're doing through those deeds of mercy is proclaiming the fact that the gospel is a gospel which changes things. It has changed us who are proclaiming it. It demonstrates the love of God and the mercy of God, which is at the heart of the gospel. This is essential to effective gospel communication. Our lives, brothers and sisters, must be in harmony with our message. If we tell someone that God loves them, but we don't demonstrate the fact that we love them, that message is going to fall on deaf ears. How do people experience the reality of the kingdom of God? In those days, they experienced it through the message of the gospel, which was confirmed by miraculous healing. Today, people experience the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel, which is confirmed by the loving care of the people of God who preach it. And if God sees fit through the miraculous. Jesus sent out these evangelists to do the work of the gospel in word and deed. He gave them some very specific instructions. And these instructions show the priority of prayer. They show the presence of danger to be faced. They show the promise of God's provision for them as they go out for this ministry, they show the, the, the peace of the kingdom which is brought. 
and the peril of rejecting it. Jesus says to his disciples there in verses 1 and 2, After this the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now Jesus said similar things on other occasions. This was his consistent perspective on the missionary calling of the church. When Jesus spoke of the harvest, as he so often did, he was speaking about people's souls. The world is like a field, and every person is like a plant, either a fruitful blade of wheat that God will gather to himself, or a pernicious weed that he will destroy with fire. God is planning to gather a great harvest of souls from every era of history and from every tribe and people group in the world. And he has given us that privilege of participating in that work. He has been building his church from this time forward to the present day. And until Jesus returns. Because Jesus isn't coming back until his church is built. Until everyone whom the Father has chosen from before the foundation of the world has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Then the King will return. And this is all a great encouragement to our efforts in the gospel. We are sometimes discouraged by what we perceive as little or slow progress in the work of missions. But the harvest is plentiful, the Lord says. God is still bringing people to salvation every day. As Jesus said to Paul when Paul was going about his very dangerous work there in Corinth, Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid, for I have many in this city who are my people. They didn't even know it at the time. Those people that Jesus was speaking about did not know that they were his people. They were about to find out as they heard Paul preaching the gospel and the Spirit of God used the gospel to draw them to the Savior. Then they would understand that they were God's people. But they did not know yet. Just as Jesus says in John chapter 10 when he speaks of himself as the good shepherd. He says, I've got other sheep that are not of this fold of Israel. I'm going to go and I'm going to call them. I know who they are. I know who my sheep are. And I'm going to call them. And when they hear my voice, they're going to recognize it. They're going to know that I am their shepherd and they will follow me. Jesus isn't here anymore. So how do his sheep hear his voice? They hear his voice through us. They hear his voice through the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed, it is Jesus who is speaking. Take a moment 
and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is speaking about just this work of evangelism and missions. And in Romans chapter 10, he says in verse 14, well, let's start in verse 13. He's quoting the Old Testament. It says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he asks a series of questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now I want you to see this in verse 14. Second question. Paul asks, how will they believe in him? Right? Obviously, that's Jesus. People need to believe in Jesus. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now, some of the older translations, if you're looking at the King James, it may say something slightly different, but this is the meaning. How will they believe in the one whom they have not heard? It does not say, how will they believe in the one they have not heard about? Paul is saying they need to hear Jesus if they are going to believe. How do they hear Jesus? They hear Jesus when those who are sent preach. As the gospel is proclaimed... It is the voice of the good shepherd calling his sheep. Jesus is heard through the gospel. That's what was happening there in the first century. That is what happens today. According to God's sovereign plan, people all over the world and in our own communities are elected predestined to come to Christ. God says that he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Now some will hear that and want to ask, well then, why should I bother to preach? Of course, the answer to that is, God is not only predestined the end of things, but also the means of getting to that end. He has predestined that he will save a people for himself, but he has also determined how he will do that, and he has determined that he will do that through the preaching of the gospel. There are those who will say, if God is so sovereign... We don't need to preach. Ultimately, all those people will come to Christ. But God is so gracious. We're back to that idea again, aren't we? Of the privilege which he has given to us. Brothers and sisters, don't look at evangelism 
as a duty, as an obligation. Look at it as a joyous privilege which God has given. You have been appointed by the sovereign God of the universe to take part in his work here on the earth. We always have great opportunities for giving people the gospel, both in our own personal lives and uh, the work of supporting missions through the church. The harvest is as plentiful today as it has ever been. There are opportunities for the gospel to spread in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of places, to all kinds of people. And here's the thing. The fact that God has chosen a people for himself ought to be a great motivator for our evangelism. Because what does it mean? It means that the work of missions and the work of evangelism will be successful. God has a people. And he's calling them. And Jesus says, when I call them, they're going to recognize my voice and they're going to come. Praise God. And so that's the perspective that we need to have on evangelism. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What do we do about that? Well, one thing we do is pray. That's what Jesus says. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But there's something else we can do. We can be the answer to our own prayers. We can be those laborers. Lord, raise up laborers to go into the field to get that harvest. And may I be one of them. Show me the opportunities that I'm missing. Embolden me so that I'm no longer fearful. Give me an understanding of the gospel so that I can explain it to those people that I come in contact with. The fields are white for the harvest. Even in those dark places of the world, dominated by Hinduism, by Islam, by totalitarian governments that don't want the gospel to be made known within their borders. The fields are white to harvest. The plenty of the harvest, of course, is as we're seeing here, inversely proportional to the number of harvesters. Jesus says the laborers are few. Not many people are willing to do the hard labor of the gospel, sowing the seeds of the gospel by sharing that good news or gathering people in by leading them to Christ. There are few. We know it's necessary because it was necessary for us. Somebody had to take the gospel to us. Someone had to take it upon themselves to open their mouths and risk being cast aside. 
risk being insulted. Risk being isolated. Someone had to do that, or we wouldn't know. We wouldn't have heard, and we wouldn't have come to Christ. Someone had to do that for us. Why won't we do it for others? We're not nearly as fruitful in our evangelism as we ought to be. And I say we because that's true of me, just as it may be true of anyone else. Nor do we have nearly as many missionaries as we need. Just to give one example, there are more than a billion Muslims in the world today. Less than 2% of all American missionaries are working in Muslim communities. Where will we get the missionaries that we need? The answer is not better recruitment, although that has its place, of course. The answer is not better conferences, though God can use missionary gatherings to carry forward the work of the Great Commission. The answer is not better seminary professors, although I'm all for theological education. The answer is persistent prayer. That's the answer that Jesus gives us there in verse 2. Therefore, therefore, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. That's the problem. What do we do about it? Well, since that's the problem, Jesus says, the answer should be obvious. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice whose harvest it is. It's not ours. It's his. Prayer has the priority. Even as these evangelists went out to preach, they were still to pray because prayer was the chief part of their labor. Just as it is here within a local church setting. Remember in the book of Acts, there was a problem in the very new church there in Jerusalem. Peter had preached his Pentecost sermon. Thousands came to Christ. Peter and John went out a little while later and they preached on the streets. Thousands more came to Christ. There were a lot of people there in Jerusalem at that time who had come down for the feast at Pentecost. They had come to know Christ through the preaching of the apostles and they didn't want to go home right away. They wanted to stay there and they wanted to learn about their their faith. They wanted to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. And so there were a lot of people there and many of them were widows. And those widows needed to be cared for. And so there's a problem in the church where the church is trying to provide for these widows, but something is going wrong and not all of the widows are being cared for equally. There's a greater emphasis on the widows of those who who are right there from uh, Judea and then Hellenistic, right, Greek widows, those Jewish widows who had come down for the feast from other parts of the Roman Empire they were getting a little bit slighted. Doesn't mean anything was necessarily being done underhandedly, but if you're serving food, right, you know, you'd probably naturally gravitate toward people you know, and you have a little conversation along the way, and 
Before you know it, there are some people that you don't know that aren't getting what they need. And so the church gathers together, and the the apostles who are functioning as the elders of that church say, we need to do something about this. But you know what? It can't be us. We cannot take care of the serving of tables. You're going to have to find somebody else to do that. We are about the word and prayer. That's the emphasis of our ministry, and we cannot be distracted from the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer to serve tables as Wonderful a ministry as that may be, as noble a ministry as that may be, you're going to have to find someone else to do that because we cannot neglect the word and prayer. And Jesus, as he's speaking to these who are going out, saying much the same thing. Okay, you missionaries, focus on prayer. Don't get distracted by anything else. Fulfill your ministry... Preach, but pray too. Because if you're not praying, there won't be any power in your preaching. And so this is what Jesus sends them out to do, to do the work of praying as well as preaching. And this is our responsibility as well. We pray to God because he is the Lord of the harvest. Three times in the opening verses of Luke chapter 10, Jesus either identifies himself or is identified as the Lord who sends out his workers into the field. He alone is able to supply the need. Just as he once sent out the 70, so now he invites us to pray so that he will send out others. And this is another aspect of God's graciousness to us. We not only have the privilege of proclaiming the gospel to the lost, but of praying that God would raise up others to do it as well. Is this need a regular part of your prayer life? If you were to, if you have a prayer list, is this on it? Or is every item on your prayer list, well, you know, this person's sick and this is, you know, we need some money over here. And um, where is missions and evangelism? Where's the gospel in your prayer time with the Lord? Every believer is called to labor for the harvest, but God also sets apart certain men and women for the work of gospel witness, to spend their lives in the work of the gospel. And we must pray for that. We must pray that God would raise up preachers and evangelists and missionaries and Bible translators, church planters, to reach the unreached around the world. There are still, in the 21st century, unreached people groups. There are those who have never heard the gospel in their own language. There are those without the scriptures in their language. And we, brothers and sisters, need to be praying that God is going to raise people up 
to meet those needs. Now, this work is difficult, as the word labor would suggest. It was more than difficult, however. It was also dangerous. And so Jesus says to these in verse 3, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is his second instruction to them, a warning about the presence of danger in gospel work. When Jesus sends his servants out to preach the gospel, especially where it has never been preached before, they are vulnerable to attack like sheep going out to face hungry wolves. That's not a good situation. Sheep typically don't do well when they confront wolves. Spiritual enemies are waiting to tear them to pieces with angry words and violent assaults. This was often true in the early church when the enemies of Christ made murderous threats against his people. You see it there in the book of Acts. Most of the apostles, all as far as we know, except the apostle John, became martyrs. It was true in the pioneer days of African missions, when missionaries packed all of their possessions into a coffin and took that along with them to Africa. Because they knew once they went, they were never coming back. They would die and be buried in that coffin. They were planning ahead for what they knew was going to happen. And that peril is still present today. To go out and preach the gospel is to be exposed to difficulty, danger, and perhaps death. And there was a time, brothers and sisters, when we could talk about this as if it only happened somewhere else. That's not the case any longer. In the Western world, that kind of opposition is rising up against the church. In what once used to be known as Christendom, we are rapidly returning to a pre-Constantinian condition when the culture and the government is opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus warns us about this so that we will know what to expect Missions agencies take reasonable precautions to protect their missionaries. But anyone who opens his mouth concerning the gospel potentially places themselves in danger. When our own people go out on the streets, there is potential danger there. And we need to be praying for them in that regard. There is courage and boldness required for this ministry. We may go out as sheep among the wolves, but we still have a shepherd who has promised to walk with us. And that shepherd is one. Let's go back and read Psalm 23. He's got a rod and he's got a staff. And those are tools used by shepherds to protect their sheep from the wolves. 
The presence of danger does not drive us to fear, but to a deeper trust in the help of our God. Now, along with his protection, God also promises provision, which brings us to the third instruction that Jesus gave in verse 4. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. These evangelists were told to go as they were without even taking so much as an extra pair of shoes. I don't know about you, but I go away for a weekend. I take a couple of different pairs of shoes. Who knows what's what's going to come up and what I'll need at any given time. But these people just go as you are. And these instructions now clearly were unique to that time and place when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and when his disciples had left their homes to follow a savior who had nothing to call his own. In fact, for reasons that will become clear when we get to chapter 22, later Jesus would tell his disciples just the opposite. Make sure you do take a money bag and a knapsack. And, oh, by the way, a sword if you don't have one. Why? Because Jesus knew, right, that's later on, Jesus wasn't going to be with them. Jesus was going to be gone. He would be crucified and buried and he would be risen and then ascended to the Father. And his commission to the apostles and to the church was then, after I'm gone, go into all the world. And make disciples. But I'm not going to be there with you then. And so plan for that. Every call is different. You can't look at one person and say, well, that's the way to do it. There are different situations. There are different times. There are different callings. But in this particular case, Jesus sent his servants out with nothing but the gospel and the hope of a plentiful harvest. They had to trust God for all of their needs, and that trust was well-placed because God promises to provide, as he always provides for those who do his work, as he has provided for us. This church has been here since 1832, and God has always provided for the ministry that he desires to take place here And as the evangelists went about their ministry, traveling from place to place, some people would welcome them in. Jesus said that in such cases they were to remain in the same house. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. It was appropriate for the evangelist to accept the kindness of strangers. Because a worker is worthy of his wages. Paul will later use that quotation in his own writings as he's describing the fact that pastors are to be supported in their work. This is why I'm not waking up tomorrow morning to, you know, put on my Home Depot vest and tell you where to, you know, find your tools. 
Because this church supports me. You don't employ me. You don't pay me to do a job. You support me to do the ministry that God has called me to. And that ministry, by the way, according to Paul in Ephesians 4, is to equip you. You are to do the work of the ministry. We really, we really should get this straight if there's any confusion. You don't pay me to do the ministry. You pay me to equip you to do the ministry. You support me like we support missionaries. So they don't have to be involved in another secular job, but they can spend their lives, their time, their energy doing what God has called them to do. A workman, a laborer is worthy of his wages. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. The people who make the biggest difference for Christ and his kingdom are people who keep their focus on the work which God has called them to. Whether at home, at church, in the workplace, overseas. J.C. Ryle said this, that these instructions Jesus gave to his evangelists sought to remind us of the necessity of simplicity and unworldliness in our daily life. We must beware of thinking too much about our meals and our furniture and our houses and all those many things which concern the life of the body. We must strive to live like men whose first thoughts are about the immortal soul. We must endeavor to pass through the world like men who are not yet at home and are, very, and are not overmuch troubled about the fare they meet on the, with the fare they meet with on the road and at the inn. Blessed are they who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are all to come. Ryle lived at the end of the 19th century. He was a contemporary of Spurgeon. You read that last line. Blessed are they who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are all to come. Kind of get the feeling that he might have read Joel Osteen. (laughs) This should not be our best life, brothers and sisters. Our best life is yet to come. Jesus sent his evangelists out empty-handed so that they would learn to trust in the promise of his provision. His provision for their needs, not for their wants. Every now and then, you know, we'll read of another televangelist begging his supporters for more money because he needs a new jet. Sometimes we'll joke about that. I'm still waiting for the deacons to approve my jet. Don't need a jet, don't need a mansion, don't need a $100,000 car. I need to have my needs met. 
And God has done that. And he will continue to do that. And he does it graciously through his people. Jesus sent his evangelists out empty-handed so that they would trust in him. And though I appreciate your generosity, I don't trust in you for my provision. I trust in him. This is what we do as a church. This is what we do as individuals. We have a fellowship fund to help those who are in need in our fellowship But if you are in need, and we are happy to help you, you ought to keep in mind that even as you receive help from the fellowship fund, that is simply the instrument that God is using. He's meeting your need. This is what he does, and this is what he does in regard to his ministry. So as these Missionaries went out as these evangelists went out. Either people would welcome them into their homes or they would leave them out in the cold. Either way, they had to make a choice. Here's how one explains it. If the missionaries had enough money to support themselves, then letting them hire a room in a hotel would be a simple commercial transaction carrying no spiritual implication. But if the people were faced with penniless, destitute men claiming to be Messiah's own ambassadors, they would be forced to decide whether they would receive and entertain them as such or reject them. Understand what was at stake when these evangelists preached the gospel, and indeed, what is at stake when anyone preaches the gospel? These were royal messengers. They were bringing a message from a king. And therefore, the way the people responded would indicate what kind of relationship they wanted to have with the king. Would they welcome his ambassadors or would they reject them? Jesus makes this perfectly clear at the end of his instructions in verse 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. These, if they were anything like the twelve, they would not have seemed very impressive. All they had was the gospel and the clothes on their back. But that's all that was necessary to fulfill the mission to which God had called them. Some people would respond in faith, and some would reject that message and be lost forever. And the same thing happens today whenever we preach the gospel. We're calling people to a decision. Believe and live or reject the offer of God's grace and remain in death. People who reject this gospel message do so at their own peril. Nowhere did Jesus make this any clearer than in these very instructions. He tells the evangelist what to do when people reject him. Whatever city you enter, if they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this that the kingdom of God has come near. To reject the royal messenger is to reject the king who sent the messenger. 
always a very serious mistake, especially when that king is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Jesus proceeded to pronounce woes against these communities because this is what was happening. They were rejecting the messengers. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. These were towns in Galilee where Jesus had performed mighty miracles and yet they had rejected him. They had every opportunity to trust him. And Jesus says, you will be held accountable even more than Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be even more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you on that day, that day of judgment. This is a sober warning. When we go out and proclaim the gospel, Every time we preach the gospel, we are providing the people who hear us with more light than those in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they are therefore more accountable than those in Sodom and Gomorrah. God holds us responsible for what we know about Jesus. The greater the opportunity, the greater the responsibility. Whenever the gospel is preached, the kingdom draws near. And to reject the gospel is to reject Jesus. We would hardly expect a bunch of pagans in a place like Sodom to trust in God. But what about people who worship in an evangelical church. What can we expect from them? More importantly, what does God expect? See, I understand this. The mission field is not just outside these walls. It's in this room. I have no basis on which to assume that everyone who sits in this room week after week knows the king. There are those who spend years in evangelical churches and never come to understand the reality of the gospel. And so we preach the gospel. And each one of us will have to face the eternal consequences of our response to Jesus and the gospel. There will be no excuses. What's your response to the gospel? I ask you this morning, what is your response to the gospel? By the logic of what Jesus said about Sodom and Chorazin, the day of judgment will be most unbearable for those who worshipped in Bible-teaching, gospel-preaching churches, but never entered the kingdom of God. If we have heard the message of salvation, then we need to respond to Jesus in faith and trust the gospel of his kingdom. He could hardly make this any clearer than he does in this passage. There are two and only two destinations. There is heaven, which is a place for those who receive him by faith, and there is hell for those who reject him in unbelief. That's it. Once we have made our decision for Christ, we need to do whatever we can to get the gospel to others. We are simply beggars telling others where we have found food. 
We don't have to be missionaries. We don't have to call ourselves evangelists. Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. It seems Timothy was not gifted with the gift of evangelism, but he was still to do the work, and that is true of all of us. It's going to cost us. But this is the privilege that we are given. May God grant us the grace to fulfill this mission. Father, do it. Grant us grace, Father. May we understand the glory that is ours to be able to go forth and give the words of life. Oh, Father, build your church. Save the lost, we ask. And we will rejoice and we will give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.